So a few weeks ago, uh, Rob preached on the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 as part of the Kingdom series, and I'm basically carrying on from there and looking at the next step um, in the Kingdom series. Um, I want to let you know from the start that it's pretty heavy stuff that we're looking at this afternoon, uh, which is going to mean a couple of things. Uh, first, we're going to spend quite a lot of time really digging deep, trying to understand the verses that we read and looking back into the Old Testament and looking forward. So some pretty in-depth study type stuff. But I promise if you stick with me through all of that, at the end we'll get to some really big kind of juicy life application-y type things. So if you stick with me through the first part of the journey, I promise I'll deliver for you at the end of it. Um, the second thing is, at some point later, we're going to put up a slide with some little squiggles on it to hopefully help us see where we're going. And it would also be good if you could have your Bibles open, if you have a Bible with you, or a, um electronically, biblically equipped device would also work. <laughs> um, so our passage today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 30. Um, and... We're going to start, and Becky Webb is going to come and read that whole passage for us as we start. So, Matthew 5, and starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Thanks, Becky. Um, I'm going to just pray for God to help us with these verses before I get going. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't send anything that is empty or unhelpful, but everything you give us in scripture, you want to bless us through and you want to open it to our hearts. And God, we pray you do just that this, this afternoon. Lord, open this word to our hearts and change us through it. Amen. Um, when I first started thinking about this um, talk a few weeks ago, uh, Rob suggested that I picked anything within the Sermon of the Mount to preach on. Uh, so you might be asking yourself, why would I pick this passage? <laughs> Am I some kind of expositional masochist or something like that? Um, why not go for something a bit more easy, a bit more feel-good? Um, well, the first thing I'd say is if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we don't get that much more in terms of fluffy or feel-good from that either. It's, 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 it's not the fluffy feel-good sermon. It is some of Jesus' hardest words that he gives while he's on earth. Um, but more seriously, I'm also convinced that if we get these verses right, if we get what Jesus is saying here and really understand what he's saying, it unlocks the whole thing to us. In fact, I really think it unlocks a lot of what Jesus teaches throughout the whole Gospels if we get what he's going on about um, in these verses. Uh, so I'm excited, if a little daunted, about where we're going today. Um, we're going to work through three questions to try and make something of this passage, um, and they all come from the text. So question number one, what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? Question number two, how can we have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees? Um, and then thirdly, how are we to understand and deal with the sin that we still encounter? So those are our three questions. So starting in verse 17, what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? Jesus kind of almost seems to start on the defensive here. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Why did he kind of qualify that? Why didn't he just say, I have come to fulfill the law? And firstly, to understand that, we need to look back at what Rob was speaking on a few weeks ago. Um, And the Beatitudes, Jesus was saying all of these kind of radical, exciting, hopeful, refreshing things. This was kind of stirring the people up in a way that they wouldn't have been stirred up for for such a long time. Um, And there was there was kind of a risk here that Jesus was going to start a social revolution. And while Jesus's words were indeed revolutionary, Jesus hadn't come to start a social revolution at this time. And so he put in that kind of qualification that I have not come to abolish the law um, because that would just about keep the Pharisees and the scribes listening. It would just about keep them from arresting him and killing him there and then. Um, So it was a a bit of a safety check um, on one level. But I think a more important second reason why Jesus says I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfil them is that he's very deliberately placing himself in the big picture of history. Um, so to help us understand that a bit more, we've got a slide which can go up. Um, hopefully that is discernible from where you are. Um, 
we'll go through it as we progress. But what we've got on that slide, and what we're going to come back to, we've got kind of two parallel timelines. At the top, we've got the different events that happen throughout biblical history. So we've got the creation of the world, the fall of man, God's relationship with the people of Israel, the coming of Jesus, uh, the age we're living in now, and when Jesus returns. Um, And I'll come back and explain what the little arrowy squiggly things at the bottom are as we get to them. Um, So what Jesus was doing by saying he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, was doing exactly that. He was saying, look, I am succeeding what has come before me, but I'm very much following on from what has come before me. So if we progress through that timeline, um, when God first created the world, there was a perfect relationship between God and man. And there was also a perfect relationship between human beings. And that's what that kind of first picture in the bottom left is showing. There was perfect vertical relationship between man and God and perfect horizontal relationship between human beings. What happened when we chose to follow our own desires, when we chose to live for ourselves rather than God, is that those relationships were shattered. Um, And that's what happened in the fall, both our vertical relationship to God and our horizontal relationships with each other were broken. They were shattered. And at this point, God would have been perfectly just in walking away from mankind. He would have been perfectly just at leaving us in the choice we'd made to turn our back on him. But he didn't do that because he loved us. He created us and he wanted to pursue us and bring us back to him. And that is the whole story of the Old Testament. That is the whole story um, of what was going on with Israel between the fall and when Jesus came. It was the start of Jesus, sorry, the start of God mending these broken relationships that we had caused by our choice. So coming back to this idea of law that Jesus speaks of and fulfilling the law, um, the law was something that was given to Israel as a kind of sign that God had chosen them. It was a sign that God had said, actually, no, I'm not going to abandon mankind. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to choose a special people. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to love them. And I'm going to bring my blessing and seek to bring restoration through them. And the law was given to Israel as a mark that they were indeed God's people. Um, lots of the um, books in the first, sorry, lots of the uh, texts in the first five books of the Bible are all about this law that God gives to Israel. Um, to keep it simple, there are, broadly speaking, four different types of law that God gave. Um, firstly, there were commands that God gave about what What should the heart of my people be? What should their kind of attitudes look like? Um, And to look at that, I'm going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. The references are up on the screen for for you to follow. Um, Don't feel you have to turn with them in your Bible if you don't want to. I'll be reading them all out, so no need to jump about if you don't want to. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 5 says, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So even back in the time of Israel, God was commanding his people that they loved him from their hearts, that they loved him deeply and truly and undividedly. 
So that was the first type of commandment. Um, Secondly, just jumping back a few verses, there were those commandments which set the basic premise of how society was to conduct itself. Um, And these will be familiar from the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. The third type of law there were, were laws that were specifically for the nation of Israel. So both of those things could be generally applied, but there were also particular laws about how they were to conduct themselves and how they were to measure things and clean out their houses and all kinds of different things that marked Israel as distinctly different, as distinctly set apart as a people of God. Um, if you want to read more about those laws, you can pretty much read the whole book of Leviticus. That will, that will cover it. Um, which is, I think I've put that up there, yeah. Um, and then the fourth type of law um, were the laws about offering animal sacrifices to God. And the purpose of these animal sacrifices were to provide kind of a continual atonement, a continual forgiveness of Israel's sin, of the things that Israel still did wrong, of all of the times Israel still chose selfishness above God. God inaugurated a system of animal sacrifices to bring atonement for those sins. Um, We'll come back shortly to seeing how Jesus fulfills all of those laws. Um, But it is worth saying that the story from Israel to Jesus uh, wasn't a smooth ride. Um, it, It didn't exactly go to plan in some ways. So Israel continually turned away from God, continually failed to keep the law, um, ended up in exile. Uh, Many of the people had no homeland to speak of. Um, And essentially, it seemed like uh, what God was doing for Israel hadn't worked. He hadn't brought about this reconciliation with the world that seemed to be promised. Yet there were a number of prophets who came along, even in the midst of this darkness, and spoke about a better time to come, who spoke about a time when God's people would love him from their heart, where his spirit would be poured out, and who foretold of Jesus coming to bring this all about. And we'll have a look, a little bit more of a look at them later. Uh, But the point of that is that Jesus coming to earth, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't something that God just decided one day, right, Jesus, it's time to go now. No, it was, it was part of this big picture. It was part of this big plan. Um, so by saying, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, Jesus is saying, yes, look back to history, but something really new is happening and I'm at the centre of it. So in a way, we're kind of already getting close to our answer of what it means for Jesus to fulfil the law. Because what Jesus did is he lived that life of perfect relationship, both to God the Father and to the world that no one since the fall had ever lived. He perfectly demonstrated what the law should look like if it was followed, if it had been lived out in the hearts of Israel's people. But the most vivid way that Jesus fulfilled the law is that he replaced all of those animal sacrifices, he replaced all of those atonement requirements by becoming the once and for all sacrifice for human sin. So if have a look at Hebrews verse chapter 10, verse 11 to 14, which says, um, sorry, verse 12, which says, 
But Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. So Israel kept on having to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because they kept on turning away from God and actually sacrificing an animal didn't really do anything to their hearts. It didn't do anything to deal with this sin. But Jesus fulfilled all of that by becoming the once and for all atoning sacrifice for all sins. So this gives us a hint of kind of the fact that Jesus um, restores these relationships, the fact that Jesus fulfills the law, but it doesn't really explain how he does it. Actually, what, what did Jesus do that made this massive difference? And to look at that, let's go on to our second question, which is how can we have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees? If Jesus had stirred up hope and expectation uh, when he uttered the Beatitudes, uh, when he said to the people, you must have a righteousness that exceeds even that of the Pharisees and the scribes, there would have been cries of outrage and derision and just laughter. This would have been a completely ridiculous idea. Uh, for the people to hear. The Pharisees were the absolute king of righteousness um, and they define righteousness as fulfilling these countless rituals, lots of kind of effort-based law-keeping and kind of being one of the the chosen elite crowd at the temple. How how could you possibly have more righteousness than the Pharisee? It'd be like saying you need to be more Catholic than the Pope or telling your pub football team to play with more skill than Barcelona. Just just can't happen. Impossible. And actually, that was Jesus's point. He wanted to highlight that on the terms that the people at that point understood righteousness, it would have indeed been impossible to get a righteousness that exceeded the Pharisees. If you did things on their terms and according to their rules, you, you wouldn't exceed them. It, it would indeed be impossible. Um, and looking onward to those um, disturbing verses about gouging our eyes, and chopping off limbs. That would kind of be the logical follow-through if you did try and pursue righteousness in a way that exceeded that of the Pharisees. Because it was it was all about doing and following. And the only way you could go above that would be something truly radical, like cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. We'll come back to those verses again later. Um, But the point is, even if you did all of that, you still wouldn't have a righteousness fit for the kingdom of heaven. So what was Jesus doing here? Was he just condemning us to hell? Was he saying, game's up, sorry, can't be done? No, he wasn't doing that at all. What he was doing, he was absolutely smashing apart the existing categories that people had about what it meant to know him, about what it meant to be put right with him, about what it meant to be righteous. And that is what he does throughout the Sermon of the Mount. He absolutely smashes apart pre-existing categories and say, no, this is the way it is. It's, there's a new way. There's a Jesus way. And that's the way we need to go down. The old ways will not work anymore. Yeah, but kind of, kind of a little image I got of this was there were so many spiritual strongholds that were holding back the people at that time. There were so many misunderstandings. Um, that Jesus was essentially, in each little kind of snippet you get in the Sermon on the Mount, was putting a bit of TNT underneath it and just blowing it to pieces and opening a new way. Um, and, yeah, that makes sense of some of the strength of his language as well in these passages. So if the pharisaical route to righteousness, if that doesn't work, 
how do we get this demand of righteousness? What, what is the path? What is the Jesus way of doing it? Oh, well, firstly, we need to kind of have a bit of a grasp on what is meant by this word righteousness. Um, it's a subject that kind of many theologians with brains the size of Jupiter have dedicated their entire careers to, and they still have disagreements over it. So obviously we're not going to go into massive depths on this debate. Uh, but I want to offer what I hope captures the essence of the term, and I hope isn't massively heretical or anything like that. So shout out if you disagree. But um, my kind of working understanding of righteousness is it is both the right standing and the right acting of the people of God. So it is both kind of status and behaviour. It, it captures kind of both in the way it's used. Um, let's get deep from this idea. Let's go back to our timeline. Um, one way of putting that is someone who has righteousness is someone who has had that vertical relationship restored and is thereby empowered to act rightly along that horizontal relationship. So again, it's righteousness is, you have righteousness if you have that horizontal relationship to God restored, which then empowers you to live righteously across that horizontal one. I think I meant vertical first time, but I'm sure you followed me. Um, and these categories, there were two very strong categories that existed throughout the Old Testament era. The idea of there being a group of people who were the righteous and the group of people being the wicked. Um, and this comes through particularly strongly if you read the Psalms. Most of David's Psalms feature pleas for the deliverance of the righteous and for the damnation and the judgment upon the wicked. Um, so these ideas about righteousness, um, although they were clearly in the Old Testament, by the time we got to the reign of the Pharisees spiritually in Jesus' day, they got lost, they got perverted, that something had gone wrong in the understanding. And we can see that really clearly if we go back to Genesis chapter 15. And this is when God is establishing a covenant with Abraham. So this is before the law, this is before the Ten Commandments, before Moses. Uh, This is the start of God putting something back together again after the fall. He says, verse 5 and verse 6, Look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So even back then, it was the faith and the belief of Abraham that was identified as true righteousness. I find that a really helpful picture. So how on earth did we get to this point where this understanding of righteousness had gone so astray? I mean, in short, we got to this point because that rebellion, that turning away from God that had happened at the fall, that power in the heart of humankind hadn't yet been arrested. It had carried on throughout the New Testament era, sorry, Old Testament era. Nothing had been done to change the fact that our hearts turn away from God. And it's a lot easier when we know we're in a bad place, to come up with rules, to come up with formulas for getting to a good place again. It's it's a lot easier to set ourselves some targets that if we meet, we feel good about ourselves and we feel like we're making progress. And I think that's how we got to the point where the religious elite of Jesus' day 
were advocating such an obscure and regulation-driven route to knowing God. Um, but the problem with that, as we've already said, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Keeping regulations and rituals just for the sake of keeping them doesn't produce any power in the heart. It doesn't produce anything that can actually help us be genuinely righteous and to follow what God wants us to do, not out of obligation, but because we want to. Laws by themselves can't do that. Because um, it's, it's, it's a lot easier, um, again, looking forward in our main passage um, about anger and lust. It's a lot easier to say, I haven't committed murder in my life, so I'm okay. I, I've never had an affair outside of marriage, so I'm okay. I haven't done those things, therefore I'm one of the good guys. But actually when we expose it, we see what's underneath. We see that underneath murder is anger. We see that underneath um, adultery is lust. So it, something more than just not doing those things needs to happen if we're to be okay. Something more. As we said, Jesus says, look, I've shown you what the real problem is here. I've shown you the anger. I've shown you that lust is the real problem. And if you want to carry on down your pharisaical path, if you carry on wanting to sort yourself out and do it yourself, you need to start chopping body parts off because it is a deep, it is a radical problem. And what, what else are you going to do? Where else are you going to go? But obviously we can see that this isn't the root cause of the problem. Our arms, our eyes, our legs, our feet, they are not the cause of sin. And if we look at Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus spells out really, really, really clearly um, what the root cause of our sin is. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile the person. So what we see is actually we don't need to chop off an arm or gouge out an eye. We need heart surgery. We need a complete heart transplant, a complete replacement. Um, And if we go back to our prophets that we mentioned earlier, the good news is that God promises to do exactly that. God promises to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Um, So Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 28. God says, and this is, this is, this is when Israel are in a real mess. So Israel in a complete mess when Ezekiel is prophesying. And God has gone through a lot of judgments upon Israel. He's gone through a lot of judgments upon the nations who are oppressing Israel. We get to some verses of future hope. We get to some verses of light and what God is going to do to make this all right. So he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. What an incredible promise. What an amazing promise. So how do we get about getting these new hearts? Does God just kind of 
give them out? Well, kind of yes, <laughs> but also kind of no. Let, let's go with the yes first. Let's go with the yes first. This kind of work of getting the new heart is completely, totally and utterly the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't set up any preconditions. We can't do anything ourselves to make it happen quicker. We can't turn it on. It is a complete gift. It is a complete gift from God, the Holy Spirit. But there's a no in that God is perfectly just and he is perfectly pure. And he couldn't just put this holy gift of a new heart into humankind without first dealing with all of that rebellion, without dealing with that uncleanness, without dealing with the fact that we have disobeyed him and we've sinned against him and turned away from him in the first place. Or to put that another way, how could his pure Holy Spirit dwell in our filthy hearts? How, how could that coexist? How could that happen? And as we have no power in and of ourselves to clean ourselves up, how do we get cleaned up? How does this justice and this cleaning come about? And the answers to these questions lie very firmly in the cross of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus accomplished so many countless blessings for us, blessings that we are going to be exploring in heaven for all eternity and getting lost in deeper and deeper wonder at what he's actually done for us. Um, I can't possibly begin to spell them out here, all of those blessings. But I think there were three particular things that the cross achieved that help us answer this question. How can we stand justly before God? How can we be made clean? So the first thing that God did is that at the cross, there was kind of a legal penalty that stood between us and God. Because we disobeyed God, we'd kind of, in a very objective sense, committed a crime against God, and we had a negative legal record against our name. And when Jesus died on the cross, that legal record, all of that wrongdoing, that was held there with him. That was put there with Jesus, so it needed to no longer stand against us. The second kind of particular blessing of the cross is that the New Testament writers speak of Jesus' blood literally cleansing our hearts, literally being sprinkled onto our hearts and making them pure and making them clean. And that's clearly a big step forward to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then finally, the cross does, um, it essentially answers the question we're asking here. The Bible tells us that God literally reckons Christ's righteousness, Christ's right living, his right status. He literally takes it from Jesus and he counts it as ours. He says, no, your status is no longer unrighteous. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, your status is now righteous. So by doing all of these things, see, actually God has made a way for us to receive these new hearts. He's made a way for us to receive the Holy Spirit. He's made a way to start actually genuinely living with restored relationships. And these two things together, receiving all of the blessings of the cross and receiving the blessing of the Holy Spirit and of a new heart, this is how we can genuinely have righteousness, how we can live rightly with God and live rightly with each other. And you can clearly see this is a massively more radical, massively greater righteousness than the righteousness that the Pharisees 
we're pursuing. And the good news of all of this is that as Christians, we have received these blessings. It's not something we have to prize reluctantly out of a measly heavenly father. No, he has given them. He has given them to us. All of the benefits of Jesus' atoning death has been applied to us, and we have literally been given new hearts. We have been given everything we need to start living with these restored relationships. And that is fantastic. And just, I want to say today, if there's anyone here today who isn't quite sure where they'd stand with God, they don't know if they call themselves a Christian, my very simple definition is that a Christian is someone who has been reconciled to God, our Heavenly Father, through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say that again. A Christian is anyone who has been reconciled to God, our Heavenly Father, through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And firstly, an assurance, if that is you, you have received a new heart. You have received the Holy Spirit. You have received the blessings of the cross. They are in the bank. It is done. Fantastic. But if you're not sure if, you've, if you call yourself a Christian on yours, those terms, if you're not quite sure where you stand with God, then please come speak to me or anyone else who's been at the front um, at the end, and we'd love to talk to you more about it. And I hope this vision, I hope this kind of vision God has of having restored relationships with him and restored relationships with other, I hope that's attractive to you. I hope that compels you, because it compelled me to Jesus, and it is compelling me every day of my life. So that is my encouragement. Right, okay, so are we done? Is that the end of story? Have we obtained our righteousness? Is everything sorted? No more problems, no more sin. Are we, are we 100% living for God? Need to deal with nothing more? The answer is no, which I hope was the answer you were expecting at that point. <laughs> if not, find out why. Um, so yeah, we come to our third big question at this point. Given God has done all of this and has achieved all of this and has set us on our path of restored relationships, what do we do with this kind of, with sin? What do we do with these kind of warnings against sin that Jesus still gives? Because I'm going to really, really go out on a limb here, and I hope I don't offend anyone, but I'm going to say that I think everyone in this room, since following Jesus, has on at least one occasion, had even a vaguely angry or lustful thought. I'm I'm going to risk that. I'm going to risk that that has probably happened to all of us. So just a very quick reality check, and also from our much broader experience, we know that there is still a battle going on. We know that this kind of battle against sin isn't over yet. And in fact, if we read much of the New Testament... Paul particularly, and in the book of Romans, talks about this wrestle with ongoing sin and this struggle. But why does this struggle exist? If we have new hearts and if we've been restored to God, why does this struggle with sins that exist? Why hasn't it just been abolished? Why isn't it over? And how do we respond to these kind of really terrible warnings about judgment and hell that Jesus gives here in light of all of this? Let's go back to our timeline for a, for a final time, I think. So we see how Jesus, and very specifically, actually, the cross of Jesus, stands right at the centre of human history. What is coming in the future is that Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going to return. He is going to establish in the heavens and the earth a perfect kingdom 
where nothing will ever shatter it, nothing will make it impure. He's going to restore all things, and it is going to be awesome, and we're all going there. But there's something in between. We've got this present age that we are living in, in between those two great events. And what happened is this kind of, this kingdom which we're going to experience perfectly when Jesus comes again, as we've been looking at throughout the kingdom series, Jesus inaugurated it when he was here on earth. He started the whole thing rolling, but he didn't bring it in totally, so to speak. Everything didn't happen all at the same time. So not, not everything in the kingdom has yet been accomplished. And in fact, the kingdom won't be perfectly accomplished until God decisively intervenes to end history and bring it about finally. So we're kind of on this path. We're kind of on this path of where the kingdom is breaking in, but it's not totally here yet. And that's reflected in our own hearts as well. So that's not just kind of the broader global picture. It's in our own hearts as well. So God has broken into our hearts with his Holy Spirit. He's broken in with new desires. He has broken in with this heart of flesh. But the old stuff, um, the sin, the rebellion, hasn't completely gone away. It hasn't completely been overthrown and got rid of yet in a way that it will be when Jesus comes again. Um, And again, Paul speaks a lot of um, the flesh or the old man kind of still living within us and kind of having this war with the Holy Spirit for our desires and our actions and our hearts. So that's, that's kind of my best attempt of explaining where we stand right now. And the best kind of analogy or picture I could come up with would be a, a military one. So imagine kind of a really long war. You could probably say, if you got to analyse it, that there was a point, there was a battle that was the absolute turning point in that war. There was one battle that turned the whole course of that war and set the end conclusion in path. But between that battle happening and the fighting actually stopping, there were still lots of battles, there were still lots of skirmishes. There were still lots of things that had to be done to get to that end point. And that's kind of where we're living at now. And that's where we're living at in our hearts as well. And to draw that kind of battle imagery and bring it back to spiritual battle even, Satan was overthrown at the cross and the resurrection. That was the point where he was defeated. But until Jesus finally comes again, Satan isn't going to go down without a fight. He is still going to do everything he can to derail God's kingdom plans. He will not ultimately succeed. He cannot ultimately succeed. But he is vicious and he is not going to go down without a vicious fight. And our hearts is one of the places where he absolutely strikes. He absolutely strikes to try and win victories there. So that makes a bit more sense of why we still have this struggle with sin. And that's why we still need to hear those radical calls that Jesus has has to do something about it. We don't need to fear the judgment of hell because we know Jesus has saved us from it. But Jesus is still saying, look, that is where sin ends up. That is where sin, if not checked, actually goes to. And so sin in our heart is still a dangerous thing. It is still a dangerous thing that we need to take seriously. So how do we take it seriously? How do we respond to that challenge if chopping limbs off isn't the answer? Well, we've established we have this new heart. So my answer of what radical action against sin looks like 
is that we need to do everything we can to help the new heart God has given us to grow and to flourish. We need to do everything we can to clear any rocks that are there that prevent God from working within us. We need to be aware of where we may be being tempted or attacked and identify it and speak against it. If we release this power, if we protect our hearts, if we protect this really precious gift God has given us, then we will know victories against our indwelling sin. We will know God progressively doing more and more in us to deliver us from the sin that remains in us. It's probably pretty obvious from this talk uh, that I quite enjoy the theological and the expositionally type stuff and diving into the big questions. Uh, but where I'm getting to now is where I've really been looking forward to getting to. So what I want to share now is some encouragements of really practically how can we do what I've just said? How can we go about letting the new life that God has given us flourish within us? Um, and this is the bit I've, I've, I've just jotted down a few ideas. Don't really know where we're going. So let's see where God takes us with this. Um, so I think, let's see, I'm, I'm planning to have seven, planning to have seven lessons of what we can take away and what we can do to help this new life flourish. Let's see where we go. Okay, so my first one is continually remember that we are in a spiritual battle. One of Satan's favourite tactics against us is to actually make us forget that this battle is going on. He likes to blunt us to all of the big realities. He likes us to forget about God. He likes us to forget about sin. He likes us to forget about heaven. He likes us to forget about hell. Because if we forget about these massive and weighty things, we're not going to be as effective for God as we would be otherwise. And so just kind of gently dulling us is something that Satan is really good at and he really likes to do. But we can count that if we remember frequently we are in a spiritual battle and it is a serious battle and we've got a part to play for God in it. So that's that's the first thing I encourage us to do. Remember this spiritual battle. Secondly, when we are faced, when we are conscious that we are faced with a choice to make, when we are conscious that we could be tempted to live in a way that doesn't reflect restored relationships, believe and claim the promises of God. God has given us so many incredible promises throughout scripture. And some of them really deep and strong. Some of them just really simple that we can claim in a moment. So, for example, in Acts, sorry, Acts, Acts, um, uh, the Bible says, all who call upon the Lord will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. How simple is that? And what an amazing promise that is. And the reason that I say claim promises when faced with temptation is that the alternative is to go back to that kind of following the rules type approach that doesn't work. Um, Let's pluck a random example. Um, I'm sure these desires don't overcome you. But if you see someone walking down a street with a really nice handbag, and you think, I want to take that, I want that, that looks nice, let's have it. If you told yourself no, theft is wrong, I'm not going to do that because theft is wrong, but I really would like to steal that handbag still. You're you're probably actually going to end up stealing the handbag (laughs) because the desires of our heart are ultimately stronger than any rules we might try and place on ourselves to stop us from living them out. But by claiming and believing the promises of God, 
we are telling ourselves, actually, no, there is something better. There is something that I value and that I treasure more than this desire to steal a handbag. So that's why the promises of God have got so much power, because they can refocus our hearts from the, from the kind of that, that law-based approach to a grace-based approach. Because anything that God promises to us, we haven't earned it. We could never earn it. And he's just pouring it down to us. So claim the promises of God as we find them in scripture. And number three, and I've touched on this one a bit already, but having received the grace of God, um, beware of slipping back into a legalistic approach to living a holy life. And I wanted to speak on this one particularly because this is something that I struggled with for a really long time in my own walk with God. So to give a bit of my testimony, I became a Christian aged 10. Uh, me and my parents had just moved from Bristol to a tiny little village with no shop or anything like that. A big lifestyle change for me, obviously. But the one thing the village did have was a weekly youth group, a weekly Christian youth group. Um, and although they weren't believers, my parents were just so happy that there was something for me to do in my village that they encouraged me to go along. Um, and I went there, I heard the gospel, and within a few months, I had chosen to give my life to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, which was fantastic. What, what I didn't quite get, and what became increasingly obvious as I went through my teenage years, is though I understood that God had forgiven me completely on the basis of Jesus and completely on the basis of his grace, I didn't get that the life that I was then to live was on that same basis. I didn't get that the same grace by which God had forgiven me was the same grace by which I was meant to live by. So I went back to thinking, well, I know what a Christian life should look like. I know that I shouldn't get drunk, I shouldn't sleep around, I shouldn't take drugs, I shouldn't be mean to people. So I knew all of those things. Um, but I thought the way of doing that was through telling myself, I've got to do these things. And if one of those desires came up, basically giving myself a good talking to, saying, no, don't do that. And it became very, very obvious that I, I wasn't that happy. I became unhappy quite quickly, as you do if you live in that kind of legalistic way. And the kind of new life that I saw in scripture and that I saw in other Christians just, just wasn't happening with me. It felt like, if anything, I was going backwards rather than forwards. And that was entirely because I got living the Christian life the wrong way round. Having me saved by grace, I went back to law and it was a bit of a disaster. Thankfully, God stepped in again um, at university and it was a particular book I was reading that talked about having to rely on the Holy Spirit to live your life for you almost. Um, it, it didn't quite phrase it like that, but it very clearly made the point that we cannot live a holy life. We can't do it. We need to rely second by second on the Holy Spirit within us to do that for us. And that just blew open kind of everything. And it was amazing. And that's, that's where I try and dwell now. I try and dwell in that grace-driven, spirit-driven place to live in the Christian life and not going back to that legalism. Uh, takeaway number four, very closely tied to takeaway number three. Don't misread the Sermon on the Mount as kind of a new Ten Commandments or a new law being given. It's a very, very easy mistake to make. Many, many churches throughout history have done it. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways, 
of course, reflects how God gave the law to Moses and how Moses went out Mount Sinai. But because it was at this kind of turning point, this radically new thing, to read the two things in the same way leads to the same kind of legalistic disaster that was just outlining. outlining. And if you read on throughout the Sermon of the Mount, there are so many things that are, if you actually applied them literally, it, you just can't work out how it could actually happen. Or if you did it, you'd be very, very miserable. So don't misread the Sermon on the Mount as a new law. Read all of it as this kind of fulfilling of the law, this, this new way, this Jesus way of doing the law. Uh, takeaway number five for fighting sin. Uh, regularly meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ. Regularly meditate on what Jesus has done for you. Um, I, I, I don't know how to say more on that point, to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't know what more there is to say. But when we look at the cross, we see, we see the absolute perfection of God's love for us. Um, 1 John tells us that if we want to know literally what love is, we look at Jesus dying for us on a cross. That is the best picture of love that the world has. And if we meditate on that, if we, if we stay close to that, we'll just love God so much. We'll love Jesus so much we will be led into the way of the new heart and will be led away from those sinful desires. So don't let it grow familiar. Don't let it grow obscure. Just, just stay there. Stay there in your times with God. Uh, point number six, and this is something I think as a church actually we do really well. And I think it's something we did so well in the worship air earlier. And my point number six is spend time just getting to know God better. Spend time getting to know his character better, reflecting on him, being in his presence, reading the Bible, reading devotional books about him. Just, just do whatever works for you and, and get to know him. Get to know his heart. Get to know how much he is really a good, good father to you. Get to know how much he really is on your side. Get to know how much he really has done everything and how he really does want the best for you. And he's not sitting there judging you from heaven. He's sitting there loving you from heaven. Get to know that in your hearts every day. And again, we will be compelled to him. And he's not going to turn us away. And then finally, and for obvious reasons for everything I've just been talking about, I don't want to prescribe a particular way of doing this. Uh, But every day, before going out, into the world, before going to doing your jobs, before bringing up your children, before doing whatever you're going to do on every given day, have a quick check and ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit to empower you that day. When we became Christians, God filled us um, objectively with the Holy Spirit, but every day he likes to fill us anew. He likes to refresh us. He likes to top us up. And it's such a simple prayer to pray. It's a prayer God loves to answer. And it can make all of the difference about what our days look like. It can make all the difference between um, going back into that safe, comfortable legalism or taking that risk and living out of the new heart that God has given us.